if you were to follow the news and believe it word for word, it was like a semi-truck full of fentanyl, waterfalls of fentanyl that was stopped on the highway outside of Indianapolis. And we were like, oh, great opportunity to ask folks about how this affected them because it just happened. And folks are like, what do you mean? There were like two more trucks the next day. We have systems that are causing people to die. And then we're jailing friends and neighbors for those deaths when, you know, I think I think we have uh, bigger structural drivers of those things. Many officers describe this as a never-ending game of whack-a-mole. When we would ask them, what does a big win look like in the drug war? They had none. This is a frustrating endeavor for them as well. And um, this is an unsolvable problem that we've put on their plate. And I do not see any of this as anti-police. And in fact, I see it as quite the opposite. And when that poor teenage girl was charged with, with homicide, because she was the only person who survived an overdose, the attorney general said, this just shows how much we love our children, that we're doing this. We're charging her out of love for our children. It's because law enforcement is exactly what America is. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. and you're listening to Narcotica. Since the start of the overdose crisis, I must have heard 50 different law enforcement officials at least explain that, quote, America can't arrest its way out of the drug problem. But that hasn't stopped them from trying. On the very afternoon we recorded this episode, which focuses on the ripple effects of drug bust on the community around them, police in Philadelphia, home to one of America's most progressive DAs, Larry Krasner, descended on the Kensington section of the city in sweeps that netted 175 arrests. In a press conference following the three-day operation, a police official said, these are drugs that won't be on the street this summer. And to be fair, he's right. Those drugs won't. But others will. Something unpredictable. And we created this problem. The truth is, the most effective black markets are those that are left to operate without interference, correcting mistakes and settling disputes through an intricate network of relationships, norms, standards, and only when everything else has failed through intimidation and ultimately violence. But we have been disrupting this equilibrium for 50 years, and look at where it's got us. Drugs are cheaper and deadlier than ever. If you're not going to regulate the drug market, you're better off leaving it alone. Risk dismantling it to such a degree that even many drug suppliers don't know what product they're buying anymore. But for most people, the alternative is intolerable. Regardless of where you stand politically, the idea that we'd all be safer if we just let drug dealers do their business with impunity sounds like surrender. And surrender is un-American, right? On this episode, we have three researchers who recently came out with a paper that was covered widely in the media that demonstrates that drug seizures by police and law enforcement strategies have the counterintuitive effect of increasing overdose rates in the immediate area around the seizures. If you could introduce yourselves, guys, starting with you, Brad. Hi, everybody. My name is Brad Ray. I am a senior researcher at RTI International and trained as a research sociologist. Hey, I'm Jennifer Carroll. I'm a medical anthropologist at North Carolina State University. I'm Brandon Del Pozo. I'm an assistant professor at Brown University and a retired police officer and chief of and joining me today is my co-host, Troy Farah. Troy, welcome. Yeah, thanks for being on the show, everyone. 
Brandon, um, when you were a police officer, uh, would you have ever thought that that the uh, some of the work you were doing would would be harming public health? Um, have you had it? Have you had a revelation since then? You know, when you led you to the study. I think that by the time I become a chief of police, I saw that a lot of things that policing did, even well intentioned, or even things that were effective in one way, were harming public health in another. That's one of the reasons why I left. My old line of research, my old profession, and I'm doing what I do now. But when I was uh, on the street back in the 90s, at the early turn of the century, uh, I would not have thought that taking drugs off the street was somehow harmful. That it would increase overdose. I believe what I think most cops believe, which is that if you can take this quote unquote poison off the street, that's an unalloyed good. Uh, challenging that with evidence like this is an important step forward. Jennifer, um, you know, I think we spoke about this offline um, a little bit. And the idea for this study, you've been kicking this around for about a decade. Is that correct? Like, and, and, and can you tell us a little bit about how this study, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes, um, finally came to, to, to fruition? Yeah, thank you. I, yes, this is an idea that I've been hearing from other folks for a while, and not just me, other folks on this team as well. I know Brad has heard this, our colleague Grant Victor at Rutgers has heard this before. And, you know, while I want to acknowledge, um, you know, Brandon Del Pozo's really excellent and valuable perspective as a former officer, I would also say that there's a lot of first responders that we've spoken to who do recognize that this is happening, right? And so when, when I've had other journalists ask me, like, is this a big surprise? I was like, well, first responders that I talk to, officers, EMTs who are really good at their job and paying attention are also not super surprised. But this is something that we've been hearing from uh, people who use drugs, from community activists. The idea that police disruption was going to cause noticeable increase in overdose is actually something that was introduced to me by an EMT in Manchester, New Hampshire many years ago. And so based on that feedback, we started asking, okay, you know, there's a lot of ways in which this could make sense. We were learning more at the time, or I should say I was learning more at the time. I think a lot of people knew this really, really well already. Um, the ways in which, for example, losing access to your primary supplier could put everyone that relies on that supplier at risk of overdose in the immediate subsequent days because they would have to go to someone that they knew less well, um, a supplier that they were less familiar with. They would have to like, you know, bum a hit from their friend, Eric, who, you know, they don't know who that person buys from. And that that was just sort of adding to the degrees of freedom that people had to navigate an increased opportunity for just genuine accident to happen with potentially deadly consequences. Great. Thank you for that explanation. Um, this is a kind of a counterintuitive idea to me, I think. You know, I, I've been covering drug policy and Chris has been covering drug policy long enough to know that, yeah, drug seizures don't, they, they can make the situation worse. Um, but, you know, you see so much in TV and, and everything and it seems like, yeah, take the drugs away, solve the problem. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, but I'm curious, like, why did it take so long? This is some of like the only data on this issue, right? Like this is a measurable outcome why is it taking so long for us to get to this point where we can actually put this into a major medical journal, explain this situation? You you really only focus on one city, uh, Indianapolis, which I think there's good motivation for that. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But um, you know why why have we not been asking this question before? And can, maybe we can unpack a little bit about the dynamics here of why this happens. Um, Brad, maybe maybe you want to jump in here. Yeah, so just by some additional background, I was a professor at IUPUI in Indianapolis for about seven years. So that's partially why the study, you know, started there. Um, and then, as uh, Jen mentioned, it was an EMS first responder that I partnered with going way back until um, like 2014 who pointed this out to me. 
And I think one of the, there's kind of two reasons that I would say this study came out of that conversation and was different than some of the other studies that had come before. Uh, one of them was that, you know, I, the time I was living in Indiana, the time that this idea was presented to me, it was shortly after uh, the situation in Scott County, Indiana, which I'm sure everybody here knows. And that was just a huge wake-up call for me to think about how um, changing the drug supply, even a pharmaceutical company trying to change the drug supply there, um, had uh, unintended outcomes in the community. So that idea was kind of resonating with me when I met with uh, colleagues at EMS who said, you know, hey, Brad, we're noticing that when there's these drug seizures, that um, overdoses increase. We have to order more naloxone. And the way that they framed it to me, the way they framed the mechanism, it wasn't this kind of big national thing, you know, drugs coming from another country that were getting interdicted. It was very much at the community level. When they did a drug bust on a house, they would talk about getting more naloxone for that community. And that, I think, really resonated with me because it allowed me to think about how we could measure this geospatially, both within time and space. So it's about where the drug seizures occur and then what happens to the overdoses around that. And obtaining the information with latitude and longitude for many years was the big struggle. And we were only able to get those drug market disruptions that measure uh, through a property room data. So we obtained the property room data, every single piece of drug material that the police uh, seized from the street were in that property room, which allowed us to uh, pinpoint where those disruptions uh, occurred. So, um, yeah, I'd say that's kind of the, the background there. Was it difficult to obtain that data? Did you have buy-in from police? I had been doing work with IMPD going back to uh, 2013, 2014. I had never done work with police, research with police, until I moved to uh, Indianapolis. I had had uh, prior knowledge uh, from my work with the Chicago Recovery Alliance of naloxone and harm reduction. So uh, I've started a partnership with the chief of police and EMS there back in 2013-14 to train officers in uh, identifying overdoses and administering naloxone. It was the first time anybody had done that in the state of Indiana. And so this developed a pretty good partnership with me, IMPD, and EMS. And so we were able to do a lot of studies with EMS data um, and, and IMPD data. You know, one of the studies we did, um, which used similar data uh, that was here, was um, we showed that when police administered naloxone versus uh, EMS, individuals were more likely to be arrested. So I had done several different studies like that with IMPD. I, the, the police department, I had been doing surveys with the police department. So by the time I came to ask for the property room data, it was really kind of benign. Uh, it wasn't identifiable information. It was really just where the latitudes and longitudes were. So it was not uh, initially hard to obtain that information, but... Um, uh, getting it from other jurisdictions, I've learned that there are some barriers there. Can, can you describe the drug market in, in Indianapolis? Um, I'm thinking of, you know, with my li my limited scope of Kensington, it's it's hand-to-hand, um, -hand, every other corner, sometimes two on a corner. Um, so it's very clustered, and there's a lot of there's a lot of activity. Um, what does is, what is buying drugs look like in Indianapolis? Yeah, Jen might want to speak to that from some of the qualitative work. Um, more than I could, but I would just say, like, compared to the other cities we've looked at, like, for example, Detroit is one of the other study sites. Um, if you we are looking at some data right now on seizures comparing Detroit and Indianapolis, and like in 2017, both of those cities, which are somewhat similarly sized, 
uh, had about 350 uh, heroin or opioid-related drug seizures in 2017. But by the time we get to 2021, Detroit's had decreased to less than 150 opioid seizures, and uh, Indianapolis had increased to over 1,000. So that's one big thing to know about that market. And then the other thing to know about Indianapolis is that no drug is seized more often than cannabis. Uh, so a lot of the drug seizures are cannabis related, which we didn't include in our analysis, but that is sort of the big drug that we see police seizing folks for there. But I'll let Jen speak a little bit more to the market from that qualitative research. Yeah, so I really enjoy doing this community work in Indianapolis. Um, I have family in Illinois, in Indiana, and I, I spent a lot of time as a kid in Indianapolis. So, you know, I've partaken in the Marion County Fair and uh, really enjoyed a lot of the frozen custard options. But in terms of getting to know the local drug market um, and how that works, this was really my first introduction. So I guess that's to say, I don't know what I don't know, but I can tell you what we saw. I think like many places, like many large cities and communities, uh, Indianapolis is a diverse place with a diverse drug market. You know, we did have some people tell us contradictory things about how the market works, and they were probably both correct about what their experiences were. But some of the insight that we got is that, yeah, there it is a lot based on social relationships. Um, people do um, have different plugs um, that kind of come and go or that may have a reputation for selling better product. Even while we were there, some of the people that we were coordinating with to really be sort of in anthropology, we call them our key informants, like the folks who are like, all right, freshmen, sit down. I will explain to you how my town works. I'll explain to you how this works. Um, those folks uh, came across someone who was selling really, really good cocaine. And there were like trusted networks where they were sort of like circulating that number and building trust. And and so, so yeah, I think there's a lot of of person-to-person -person sales. I didn't hear anything about, uh, we, or at least we didn't talk to anyone who was doing like dark web or dead drops or anything like that. We didn't encounter that I recall any open air drug markets, but we may, just may not have talked to that portion of the community. One thing that I found super interesting is we did ask people, you know, on the ground, like, hey, we're asking this question of how and how much does police disruption, arrest, drug seizures impact you as just a regular person who is trying to go about their day, uh, not go into withdrawal and not overdose and, you know, do your laundry, pick up your kids, live a life, whatever. And folks often kind of like paused at the question and were like, hmm, and, and sort of communicated that they experienced like a sort of low level constant I don't want to use the word harassment, but like, you know, police were a complication that were always kind of there, but weren't really seeing, weren't perceiving these sort of spikes that we were picking up in the data. I was trying to explain this to a student recently, and I said, you know, economically speaking, if the average number of children per household in the U.S. goes from 2.1 to 2.3, that's huge. But the average parent is not like, whoa, my goodness, right? So, so individual people aren't necessarily feeling those same waves in that way, but they are very cognizant of, you know, being followed, people getting pulled over, folks getting arrested, warrants served in their neighborhood, um, things like that. But when we asked how the market was really being disrupted, folks were like, listen, you know, it's not like some huge shipment lands in Indianapolis and that gets us through August, right? It's like stuff is coming in on a day-to-day -day basis. We mentioned Brad came across a news piece where there was like a huge semi-truck if, if you were to follow the news and believe it word for word, it was like a semi-truck full of fentanyl, waterfalls of fentanyl that was stopped on the highway outside of Indianapolis. And we were like, oh, great opportunity to ask folks about how this affected them because it just happened. And folks are like, what do you mean? There were like two more trucks the next day. You know, so like just folks are saying it's just constantly flowing in. And so efforts to have these big disruptions are necessarily going to be futile. 
which to be frank is is a an insight that officers at IMPD echoed when we asked them the same thing um uh, so yeah so those disruptions are definitely happening but also they're happening on these small scales in a way that actually kind of makes it not seem less impactful for public health but actually makes it seem a little bit more insidious for public health by my view I think that these contrasts between, for example, Kensington and Indianapolis or Detroit and Indianapolis are an important bit of research to to, to tease out. Um, I had somebody who read our study and said, I believe your findings and I think they're extremely valuable, but I wonder if they generalize to a place like Kensington and the researcher picked up Kensington in particular as a place that is so awash with supply block to block to block that there may be differences between corner to corner, but the opportunity for a meaningful disruption in supplies is is limited, unless the person's, for example, picked up and, and jailed for a few days. And that doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to Kensington. It would just be really interesting to see if there are differences. Right. So wait, was, was the suggestion that it doesn't hurt anybody to seize drugs in Kensington or that seizing drugs in Kensington would be such a small impact that nothing would happen? Right. I meant no implication. I was just trying to understand what it, it sounds like you, the, the market in Indianapolis is similar to South Philadelphia, where I live, where it's a, you know, each person has a plug or two plugs they, they call, um, you know, and, and they'll have a, a, a sort of set clientele and somebody has to be introduced to them and that kind of thing. So I have some familiarity with that as well. Um, I, I would think that Potentially, there's there's more there's more opportunities to to buy drugs in in Kensington and more options for drugs. But consistency has always been the biggest seller of of uh, when it comes to marketing a product like 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 heroin or fentanyl. Um, I I think most people would rather have a consistent seven than a, than a, than something that's a ten and fluctuates between that and like a five. You know, it's it's consistency. And so it sounds like you're talking about a disruption in the consistency of the product. Like could lead to these these uh, overdose outcomes, and and then so I will say that the same the same thought in the buyer's mind would 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 apply just about anywhere. I'll just say I do think it's the supply, but I also think, and we've talked about this in the article, it's also you know folks lose some of that tolerance just as time goes on as well. So regardless of even if you were to get the same supply, as one's tolerance decreases, they might not know how to appropriately dose themselves with that supply. So. I think it's about that just as much as it is the supply changing. And then just one last thing I'll mention, you know, Indianapolis, um, besides the cannabis, uh, another thing to know that makes it a unique setting is syringes are a felony to possess. So a lot of individuals are incarcerated at overdose calls for service. We, the team of us, did a separate study on this. At least one out of 10 times that an overdose call for service comes in, that person is booked into the county jail. One out of five overdose deaths in that county are people recently released from that jail. So I think that's another interesting component. And then also just geographically where it's situated in the U.S., we heard from people when we talked there, you know, you've got supplies coming from Detroit. You've got supplies coming from Chicago. You've got things moving out of Ohio. You've got things coming north. So there's a lot of different activity just based on where Indianapolis is located in the U.S., what Brad mentions, and I'm I'm so appreciative of the work that he's doing, like it would not have occurred to me to ask how many people get arrested at overdoses in Indianapolis, because I mean, you ask me, I'm like, yeah, people get arrested at overdoses. And yet still the numbers he found were like, pretty stunning. But for me, um, some of the stuff that I focus on in North Carolina, where I live is the implementation of our drug induced homicide law, which is reaching pretty far into some of our communities. And I have a lot of questions 
about the moral standpoint of those laws and the ethical standpoint of those laws, not just from a, is an overdose a homicide question, which I think it, it is not, but we know that arrest post-overdose is causing more overdose. We know that drug interdiction is causing more overdose. We know that all of these things that our law enforcement systems are charged to do are causing more overdose, and then ordinary citizens are getting arrested and charged with homicide for those overdoses. And that, to me, is something that I think we need to take a really long, hard look at, um, because blame in accidental injury is already so, so, so hard to sign, and it's a very, very messy, you know, activity to undertake. And and now we're learning that, like, you know, it's... I've heard prosecutors say, like, oh, well, it might be different if the person that supplied the drugs was also a user and also a victim of blah, 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 but, like... It's more than that, right? It's like we have systems that are causing people to die and then we're jailing friends and neighbors for those deaths when, you know, I think I think we have uh, bigger structural drivers of those things. Yeah, it, it accomplishes nothing. It disappears people into prison really effectively. It does that. Yeah. That New York Times article that uh, began by Jen Hoffman recently, and Jennifer was was, was quoted in it. Uh, Big ups for Jen Hoffman, yeah. It began with the, the the account of three girls, three teenagers in high school who took uh, some opioids right before graduation in a car. Two of them died, and the third barely survived, and they charged her with homicide for killing the other two. She's 17 years old. 17. She's a high school student. She just lost two of her friends before graduation and she's like a homicide suspect in, in this jurisdiction. It shocks the conscience. It's, it's, it's so stupid. It is, it is Pennsylvania, Franklin County. And there's a couple of counties here that are just notorious for it. I think we had a case where a guy bought what he thought was Adderall online. Um, and, it, and, and his girlfriend took one and, and she died because it had fentanyl in it. And, um, then he was charged and and subsequently killed himself. I don't, I don't think it comes to much more bigger tragedy than that. So there's two lives, you know, because of these laws. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the actual underlying ways that this works. I, I, I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I just really want to drive it home for listeners. Like, how does taking drugs off the street result in more overdoses? And what are the policy implications of this? Because... What are you supposed to just allow drugs to like flow into a community? I can hear that kind of argument coming from somebody, but I, I, I obviously we need to think of ways if seizing supply isn't doing anything and is actually having a counterintuitive effect. Or what do we do instead? Before I let uh, someone else answer that question, I want to say one thing. I've been interviewing police officers on an unrelated study, uh, similar but unrelated, for weeks now, and I use this this study as a vignette to test their intuitions. And the response is at first uniform. They go, what? And they recoil. And then if you explain it to these officers, um, they say, no, you know, that makes sense, especially officers on patrol, officers out there in the community dealing with people who use drugs. Once you get over the defensiveness that they have, they, they literally say, oh, I totally see what you're saying and I've experienced it. And that just ties into Jennifer's earlier point that, that first responders know this is true. They just need to have it said to them in a way that they can 
process. Yeah, there was even a great local news piece from Manchester, New Hampshire that came out. We couldn't have timed it better. Thank you, Universe. Like two days before our paper was released, where they had local public health and law enforcement officials being like, man, there was a big drug bust and we're real worried because we know that people are going to overdose more. So public awareness, everyone get your naloxone, call here, da, da, da. It's like, yeah, people who are paying attention know that this is how it works. Hey, so I will try, I'll let Jen circle back to kind of get into the mechanism, but there is one thing I want to say about, you know, uh, the, I, one of the things that has perturbed me, the only thing that's perturbed me about publishing this study is people coming at me that this is anti-law enforcement. And I really reject that notion based on, you know, what Brandon just said, based on our interviews with law enforcement through this study and through others. Uh, many officers describe this as a never-ending game of whack-a-mole. When we would ask them, what does a big win look like in the drug war? They had none. This is a frustrating endeavor for them as well. And um, this is an unsolvable problem that we've put on their plate. And I do not see any of this as anti-police. And in fact, I see it as quite the opposite. I see this movement and this kind of discussion around, listen, there may be unintended harms coming from this policing activity. Um, maybe this is something that you're not well situated to do. Maybe we could realign your uh, you know, public safety responses towards more impactful things. I see that as very pro-police. Um, and I know this is a corny example, but I've, I've had to talk about this in other settings, but like I used to be a professor, Jen and Brandon are in that world right now. You know, there's everything, you know, three things all professors have to do, teaching, research, and service. By and large, professors hate doing service. They're totally ineffective at it. We pay administrators, and I can say all this because I'm not in academia anymore. We pay administrators so much money to do that service uh, within these university settings. And if somebody took a cold, hard look at this, they would realize professors are no good at budgetary affairs committees or curriculum design committees necessarily. And they would say, you know what, maybe you guys shouldn't do as much service. Maybe that's something we should pull off of your plate. And no one would refer to that as anti-professor. Right. And so the, the fact that this comes off as anti-policing is something I do quite resent. Um, so anyway, I'll stop. There. I think Jen can. Connect this I mean, having having spent a lot of time around B cops in, 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 in Philadelphia and in Kensington neighborhood, I can tell you that by and large, most of them do not want a part in this. Um, they they find attending to overdoses when when we had our big spike in 2017 2018 especially was taking time away from from investigating crime um it's also let's it, it should be number one on the police labor unions like it should, you know great grievances issues it, it causes how many police to be shot how many police to be shot at how many you know injuries um it, it is absolutely pro-police i think the war on drugs is as much a war on police and the police the profession of policing as anything um they are caught up in this too yeah so christopher you were talking about the, the experiences of the philly b cop going all the way up to the highest levels of the dea when i was a chief of police in burlington i'd get these briefings from the dea about their strategy for narcotics in new england and it would begin with these investigations with all these kilos that they're seizing and this target that they're going to take down. And I said to them when I was a brand new chief, all right, so that's great. So what's the strategy? They said, what do you mean? I said, well, this has got to be part of a strategy to, is it like in five years, the price of drugs is going to be triple because you've really constrained the supply. Is it going to be that you withered the network so much that you can't get the drugs into Burlington? Can I please see the plan? I have a secret clearance. 
there was no plan. It was just whack-a-mole chasing kilos forever. And if I sound frustrated, it was because, I don't know, I haven't heard the DEA have a reckoning about this yet, that they have no plan to, to, to deal with this. Just needed to get that out. Jennifer still owes us a causal explanation for, for our paper, but I wanted to get my two cents in. Yeah, happily. I would say for every public health official who is like, oh my God, they want me to draw another logic model about why my intervention works. Like, this is what happens when you don't have one and you don't understand how your your work is efficacious in the world. Um, yeah, so, you know, our this particular study, because it was quantitative, it was population level, we're looking at large numbers, um, we were able to get super, super granular geographically, temporally, and I think that's the you know, I, I'm a data person. I think uh, most folks on this call are data weirdos. And so that's very exciting to us. What we weren't really able to get at in this specific study was the how um, of like, what is the logical connection between these things? Um, just because it wasn't set up to do that. But we have plenty of other research that provides us lots of evidence of multiple mechanisms, proof of concept of multiple mechanisms, right? So um, I recently had a journalist elsewhere ask me like, well, how often is it the case that it's like, oh, someone goes without and it's their tolerance get drops and that's and what I told them was like look uh we don't know right now how common that particular mechanism is compared to other ones but we do know that it happens in the world because it's been evidenced it's been recorded right so that's what we have we have mechanisms that we know exist in the world to more or less degree and those include Things like if your supplier is arrested, you know, going to a less familiar supply, as I mentioned earlier. Um, again, I, I don't I don't think this is a glib analysis at all. I think it's an actually a perfect analogy. But think about going to, you know, a new Thai restaurant and they're like, on a scale of one to five, how spicy do you want your pad thai? And you're like, I don't know, what is a three here? Like that could be, you know, atomic or it could be bland. I don't know. So you're like, even if you have suppliers who are really nice people, a lot of suppliers are really nice people who are trying to communicate and be clear. There's, you've not coordinated those things because you're going on these qualitative, like, oh, it was kind of strong as opposed to like, it is this many milligrams and a clear measured dose with instructions, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that qualitative has room for messing. Um, we also know that when uh, supply gets removed on a larger scale, like maybe someone had who was planning to distribute a batch or sell a batch lost part of that batch, well, they may be financially on the hook for the earnings that they were going to have from that. They may still have supply, uh, or excuse me, demand that they no longer have supply to fill. Um, that could be motivated by capitalism. That could be motivated by compassion for clients who are their friends who are now withdrawing and they want to help. So they may adulterate that adulterate is not the right word that has a really negative connotation they may change their batch in order to stretch it and sort of like get more people covered than would otherwise um those even if a, a supply is sort of diluted a little bit and we've seen this in western north carolina particularly following some major um overdose as murder cases that the supply will dilute a little bit after that and if you have a short-term view on it, you might be like, oh, great, drugs are less potent. Well, it's going to renormalize. And in that renormalization, folks are going to be caught off guard because it goes back up. Um, you know, so there's there's lots of different mechanisms that might happen. Oh, and again, also, if someone has just their personal supply taken, right? Because a lot of the seizures that we saw weren't necessarily big drug busts. They were like small, you know, folks having their point and their bag taken off of them. Um, you already spent your money that day. 
right? And you might still, so what are you going to do? Are you going to have to find someone who will float you? Are you going to have to find a friend to share their supply? Are you going to have to find someone that you trust a little less, but is willing to exchange chores or favors or whatever? Like I know folks who have done lawn care, sex work, child care, all kinds of things to like get themselves covered for that day. Um, and I think it's just a human fact. Um, I mean, I'm even thinking of myself in my 20s when I was extremely bad at filling up my gas tank and got myself in trouble in rural Oregon a lot and was like, I am making suboptimal decisions because I am terrified of being stuck on the side of the highway without any gas. So when we're in these like even low level distressed places, we don't always make the most optimal decisions for ourselves. And so we're just constantly putting people into stressful places where they're not able to make the best decisions. Uh, so I think that's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like, like Brad said, and like Brandon has said, either first responders tend to know already that that is happening or when you explain it to them are like, mm, yeah, in fact, that does fit with what I see very, very well. Thank you. That is a great explanation. I, I've heard a metaphor, um, that it's like a balloon. And then if you squeeze one part of the balloon, it all kind of, all the air goes into another. And so mm -hmm. there's this logic of taking drugs off the street. It's just going to be like, okay, once the drugs are gone, people who use drugs are going to be like, Oh, I guess I won't use drugs. Like if I went to the grocery store and they were completely out of beer, I just wouldn't drink beer, but that's not how it works. That's not the rationale. People it's, it's self-medication in a lot of cases. And you know, there is, yeah. Putting people in this desperate situation, that does also uh, drive an increase in crime, I believe. And you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you know, if you're, if you had a small amount of money, you spent it on drugs, and then those drugs were stolen, you're not going to just be like, oh, okay, I guess I'm just going <laughs> to go to the movies or something. You know, y you might break into someone's car or or or. Desperate times. It's you're, yeah, you're putting people in a desperate situation, and and like, it should be obvious that putting people in desperate situations increases harm. Right. You know, when I talked about that, that one county in Western North Carolina, we, we've actually written this up in um, International Journal of Drug Policy. It's a piece called uh, Drug-Induced Homicide Laws May Worsen Opioid-Related Harms. The May is doing a lot of work in that sense. It does. But, you know, when we talked to folks who said that the supply was sort of diluted after this major conviction and sentencing because everyone was kind of panicked, um, it eventually renormalized that put folks more at risk. But, but I, I was just talking to community members. I'm like, so what are you doing now that all the drugs are weak? And they're like, well, I guess you have to buy twice as much. And so, you know, there is that public health question of like, well, is that more injection events? Is there more need for more supplies, more risk of bacterial infection, whatever. But also I would love to have a conversation with the county sheriff out there about the public safety consequences of making the entire county's dope habit twice as expensive overnight right like how is that helping anybody we're, we're having an interesting experiment kind of play out here in philadelphia with the xylazine saturation um the 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 potency of a bag of of dope has gone down because there's less fentanyl in it and the amount of xylazine it takes to actually kill somebody is extremely high so people aren't dying of xylazine um but so i've talked to overdose response teams that are that are seeing like less fatals on the street less doing less reversals uh, with naloxone because it's, you know it's a different process. With um, so I, I wonder now that we've we've scheduled xylazine in Pennsylvania, and and trust me, I don't think that's going to have much of an effect on the supply. Um, but but uh, if if potentially suddenly xylazine dried up and they started you know reintroducing more fentanyl instead of you know a fifty fifty cut and now it'd be maybe a sixty twenty cut or whatever, 
that that would you know that could have a massive effect on overdoses in in in, in the city. Mm-hmm. And I have such sympathy for y'all in Philadelphia because you've been dealing with xylazine for so long, and no one has given a crap. And like, I feel like the second, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of talking to a bunch of wound care nurses and harm reductionists in, in Philly and other places the last few months. And like the knowledge out there about how to manage xylazine, manage xylazine wounds, get people through withdrawal, get them into care, even though they have these skin ulcers that make them look like they're medically complex patients, even though they're not like the second folks get that figured out and learn how to help people, policymakers are like, hey, let's throw everything back into the hopper and shake it and see what happens, you know, and are just like just disrupting things all over again. Um, And I worry that y'all are going to experience whatever itazine or have you like comes down the pike again and have to go through the same thing where like no one pays attention to the massive suffering that you're experiencing for like six years until they come to and are like, oh, let's make that illegal now and then rinse and repeat, right? I knew things were bad when you start, they started selling black market antibiotics on the street. You know, like it, it, antibiotics were were being sold, you know, in, in, on the black market in Kensington. That, that's that's when it was that's when it was clear to me that that we had we had uh, tipped tipped the peak there. Um, and, and and yet, Christopher, in Pennsylvania statewide and in Philadelphia, there are pending bills to preemptively ban uh, overdose prevention centers, you know, safe injection sites. Uh, that have bipartisan support, right? So at one level, you're painting this terrifying picture, right? Which is true. And then people are doubling down on on their opposition to evidence-based interventions, like preemptively banning them uh, by law. It's striking. The, the, the craziest sight I ever saw was Democratic council people standing uh, on a podium in front of uh, red MAGA hats just Trump supporters railing against safe injection sites. I mean, it was probably the only thing I saw those two sides come together on. Uh, and, and that was in Philadelphia during the safe house, uh, you know, during the early safe house years. But yeah, you're right. We have a bill in, in Philadelphia and one statewide uh, that we hope to defeat. Y'all asked earlier about the policy implications of the study that we have. And, and you know, I think this this dovetails with that very nicely. That safe house thing broke my heart. Like I cried <laughs> when that happened. Um you know, we've had a number of people it just in discourse at conferences, whatever kind of offer us their take on like what a good policy response to our findings are. And they have ranged from, I think on, on the, on the axis of Jen is really enthusiastic to Jen is super not enthusiastic about it on the latter. end, um, there have been suggestions of like, Oh, we should just continue doing all these drug raids and seizures and then have public health come in and, you know, sweep up on the back end or even someone who like, knows just enough about like the trans theoretical model of behavior change to have really bad ideas with it suggested like, ah, this could be like the, the moment that people need to move from contemplation into action. So we should take advantage of major drug interdictions in order to like motivate people into recovery. And I think, you know, okay, but, but what that does not do, and and I'm also uh, channeling, you know, some of the folks that, that Jan Hoffman, uh, Brandon, what was the name of the woman from the law enforcement action group? Diane Goldstein. Diane Goldstein immediately followed her on Twitter. Really neat lady. Um, But she had this quote of like, yeah, we're doing all these things and saying it's going to save lives. But like, are we actually asking like, how does one save lives? (laughs) Right? Like, what is the path that takes us to there? And I think it's time 
to really reevaluate. I know some of us have been in this conversation space for a while, but like as a society, as a set of government institutions, to reevaluate what prohibition has done for us, right? Because I think the most fundamental implementation question for anything is what is your goal and how is your strategy getting you there? And we're learning that it's not, right? Like we know that criminalization does not deter crime the way that we think it does in this dragnet law and order kind of way. We know that enhanced criminal sentencing does not deter crime, right? And that has been consensus in the sociology criminology world for decades. So I'm fond of saying that any any politician or prosecutor that gets up there and is like, this is going to stop overdose and deter crime to put people in jail for 20 years, like they're either working with a criminology textbook from the 1980s making shit up as they go along, or just outright lying to you, perhaps to themselves, right? So three and a half possibilities of what's happening there. It's just not true. And, you know, I really think about how, especially in the United States, our most evidence-based, high-impact, really effective overdose prevention strategies came from the community. Like, drug users gave us syringe exchange. Drug users gave us naloxone as a community tool. Drug users gave us overdose prevention sites and drug checking and all of this stuff that I just get, like, so... I'm, like, getting goosebumps now. I'm like, drug checking, ah, goosebumps. So exciting, right? This is saving so many lives. So we should be looking to what the community is telling us about this. And I think we should be taking instruction from places like insight places like on point look at dolf the drug user liberation front with this like really radical name but they're just like let's have safe supply let's have regulated heroin right we have regulated alcohol we have regulated tobacco we still do public health messaging around it it's still not risk-free but people are not dying by the hundreds of thousands because we have consumer protections in place i think that the community is telling us what the policy solutions are it's just that this war on drugs narrative is so pervasive and so compelling that it's this, in anthropology, we call it a hegemonic idea, this idea that's like so big that we can't actually think outside of it, right? Um, it's why it's so hard for people to think about justice being anything but retributive, justice being anything but punishment. When someone says like, oh, are we just supposed to let drugs flow into the community? That's telling me that we're making it hard for ourselves to think outside of the harmful system that we have. We have community members who have done that work intellectually, logistically, program-wise, thinking outside of that system. And that's who we should be looking to for more solutions, right? Obviously, it's not helpful to change everything overnight. We need community input. Um, I really take a lot of instruction from Miriam Kaba, who is like a million tiny experiments, work in your community, figure out what's, what works for your community, try something, get better, try something new. I think that's what we need to be doing from a policy standpoint, but also just like we, we gotta, we gotta really knock this criminalization definitely works shit off because that has not been the case for a long time. And it's just a story that we keep telling ourselves over and over contrary to the evidence. Uh, if I had a nickel for every time I heard a police official say, we can't arrest our way out of this problem and then go ahead and try to do it. Again, you know. <laughs> and yet, how many times have you heard an officer say, I think that your friend's life is so important that I'm going to put my investigation at risk so that you feel comfortable calling 911? I will just, you know, in that policy implication question, Troy, I'll just say I would have never been the person to say this five years ago, but I feel very comfortable saying it now, like, just don't take people's drugs away from them.
I've talked to officers in other cities and other countries, and they believe those drugs where they're at. But to say that here, you come off like an almost, you know, like you're not with reality somehow. Um, so I'd say that is sort of one policy recommendation. And then the other is, um, you know, uh, Jen turned me on to this program that was developed while she was at the, the CDC, the Opioid Rapid Response Program. And I don't know if y'all are familiar with it, but what it is is when they're going to take down a prescriber, um, they're going to arrest a prescriber. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean because that person's doing shady prescriptions. They could be, and I, this is a true example, they could be a sex offender. So this person's a, a medical doctor prescribing medications for opioid use disorder or prescribing uh, uh, pain analgesics is also a sex offender, and they're going to arrest that person. What happens is the DEA can work with the CDC to mitigate the harms of taking that person from disrupting that drug supply locally. And that's how the uh, uh, ORRP is like intended to operate when it's a patient and a provider. And so we understand that mechanism. And like, I saw you post something on Twitter recently, Chris, where it was from like 2015, where the DOJ was talking about when these prescription medications come out and heroin comes in, that there's an increased risk. This is the exact same mechanism that our study is looking at. It was actually from 2002, if you can believe that. That long, that, that far back, they knew it. And and it's interesting what you said about the C- CDC and the DEA. Um, my, my DEA source uh, was was taken off of, um, you know, with investigations and put onto doctor investigations and shut down a whole bunch of doctors. And he told me that they, I said, so what do you do? Like when you're going to shut down a doctor, you just, you know, padlock the door and all these people show up. And he said, well, we, we, we give a courtesy call to the local ERs to let them know that they might, you know, uh, experience a spike in, in, in people coming into the ER. Uh, but that that was and that and he he considered that a courtesy. Uh, they didn't have to do that. So it's good to hear that there's a there's a program that's that's, that's trying to do more about that um, because you know that that's a that's an intervention that that affects legitimate patients as well as 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 you know doctor shoppers or whatever you want to call but, it. But again, like even in that public health public safety collaboration, and I, I do not represent the CDC at all <laughs> these days, so I feel comfortable saying it that like consistently, you know, that, that program has been through multiple iterations over time. Um, we learn as we go, it's a human feature and every single step along the way that I am aware of the biggest hindrance to successful implementation of that, I think potentially very impactful program has been law enforcement. So for the longest time it was there, the paperwork was done, it was created, it was a thing. They were training task forces to do it and they couldn't get it off the ground because the DEA needed to do this thing that to them was unthinkable but was, you know, necessary, which is like letting folks know a couple days ahead of time that you're about to take down a clinic. Right. And like, and that's what I meant when I made this like snarky comment earlier of like cops won't let their investigations go so much at the time. Like that's seen as this like, you know, pristine, untouchable priority, regardless of its impact on public health. It was like, you're going to let us give out law enforcement sensitive information about our investigation before we act on it. Absolutely. Go screw yourself was sort of like the response that was gotten. So a lot of really, tireless work that I am not cut out for as an individual was done um, by by those public health liaisons. And so eventually the DEA agreed to sort of telegraph that this was happening a few days ahead of time. And then subsequently, the major problem was getting community providers to sign up to be this sort of, um, you know, backup squad of like, hey, we're going to get an influx of patients that whatever is going on with them is on a pretty high MME of opioids every single day and is going to be put in harm's way if we just rip that away from them. 
pain, uh, you know, substance use disorder treatment, you know, working, whatever it might be, will you be willing to take these patients? Like, can we call you when we have orphan patients? And it's been just like an absolute hair pulling challenge to get folks to sign up because they're like, oh my God, the DEA is going to get me. I don't like, I'm terrified. Right. So, so even though it's not law enforcement, literally standing up and like side-eyeing doctors to be like, uh-uh-uh, don't take these patients. They are de facto doing that with their policies, with the way that they act. And I've been, um, pretty unimpressed in the, the very limited non-systematically chosen, uh, sample of DEA officers I have interacted with in my life. Um, I have not been impressed by their ability to recognize, the emotional impact that they have on people through their actions by the way that they operate, the way that they communicate, especially on providers. So, so like, again, even in this huge win for promoting public health by shifting how law enforcement works, law enforcement continues to be the problem. Right. Who wants to be the, the, the backup to this, this quote unquote shady doctor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it might be next. No, to folks are like, I can't do that. I have kids. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I always say in, conversations is that policing is the great mirror of society and sometimes you hate what you see in the mirror so you want to smash it sometimes you want to change what you see in the mirror so you try to change yourself but if law enforcement is the problem it's because america has a like a a limitless appetite for punitive and attributivist responses to drug use and police in my research report substantial authority over their ability to use discretion in enforcing laws against drugs or enforcing uh, laws against paraphernalia or seizing contraband, but you find the community where people will say, I want my police to leave drugs in the hands of people who use drugs. And you found a community I've yet to find anywhere in America. I think the opposite. I think if the police said, we've listened to Jennifer and Brad and Brandon, and we are, we are not taking any more drugs, parents of people with children who are suffering from addiction will rise up and say, if you let my daughter walk down the street and keep the drugs in her hands, I'm voting the mayor out of office and getting you fired. And that is not all of them. That's enough of them to say, we really don't want to do this because we're reflecting what we're seeing in America with the punitive mindset. And when that poor teenage girl was charged with, with homicide because she was the only person who survived an overdose, the attorney general said this just shows how much we love our children that we're doing that we're charging her out of love for our children. Like, so as much as I agree with Jennifer, that law enforcement stymies, uh, these reforms, it's because law enforcement is exactly what America is. You know, hurting somebody and saying, this is because I love you is just like textbook abusive relationship. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up the, uh, the concept of safe supply because it feels like this is really under attack right now, um, especially in Canada. And I am just, I love the work that Dolph is doing, uh, the Drug User Liberation Front, um, because they are literally putting their freedom on the line to advocate for this concept. And like you mentioned, like all of these tenets of harm reduction and public health did come from drug users first. And that involved a lot of getting arrested, a lot of death, a lot of suffering trying to make something that's such a no-brainer concept like syringe access a thing 
Um, and, you know, this guy, Jerry Martin in Canada, um, was arrested a month ago in Vancouver for opening up an illicit drug dispensary um, where he was giving out, you know, drugs with known dosages so that people know what they're fucking taking. Like, a lot of people are going to keep getting arrested for this, but I want to talk about why safe supply is is effective and why we should consider this um, as, a, as a policy. But also, I think it is worth mentioning that the normal safe supply, what we just call drug regulation, is also collapsing. There's Adderall shortages, there's Xanax shortages, there's shortages of cancer drugs. All kinds of these problems are like, and I've been trying to figure out like, what are some of the sources of all this? A lot of it had to do with the pandemic and supply chain issues, blah, blah, blah. But when you can't get your prescription medication, sometimes you will turn to the street. And and, and Chris, I, I think you can attest to this a lot. People that need Adderall are, are, are doing meth a lot more and, and that kind of thing. So people that are attacking safe supply, let's talk about that. Why is this under attack? I, I think even even the way it's supposed to function isn't even working anymore. If you draw a causal map of how supply interruptions lead to fatal overdose, and then you look at where to cut that causal chain out, that that graph, like safe supply cuts it right there. I mean, it cuts it because it part of that causal chain is interrupted supply. And then part of that causal chain is a resupply of unknown or uncertain potency. And in both of those points in the chain, cutting the supply or resupply of unknown potency, um, safe supply comes in and, uh, and breaks that, that mechanism, right? I mean, that's the nerdy way to say it, but it's common sense when you think about it, right? If, the, uh, if one of the variables is a dose of un- uncertain potency with no margin of error, then safe supply uh, eliminates the unknown potency and the unknown margin of error. Like it's just science. It's pharmacology. Yeah. And Chris was saying earlier that, you know, we even have examples of this, you know, proof of concept going back like a couple decades, probably further if we actually stopped to look. Um, But, you know, I think a really, really excellent illustration of the benefit of safe supply is the OxyContin reformulation in 2010, when a substance that was uh, circulating in the illicit supplier being diverted, whatever you want to call it, um, in a lot of places and was responsible for what at that time we thought was a lot of overdose was not taken off the market, but reformulated so it couldn't be used in those ways, right? Um, I always like to remind people that when drug manufacturers say abuse deterrent, they mean made to kind of resemble a gummy bear so that you can inject it, not not addictive, right? But when we took that original formulation off the market, you can find there's that like three waves of the overdose epidemic graphic that the CDC puts up everywhere because it's so compelling to look at. Heroin deaths are at like a right angle in 2010, Right. And and for people who live in the drug policy world and not just me, like at public health agencies, at the national and state level uh, researchers, people who have made it their job to understand how all of these moving parts work. It is a deeply non-controversial statement and it is beyond accepted that the reformulation of OxyContin caused directly an increase in heroin overdose deaths. Right. Um, the National Academy of Sciences has written about this. They're the, they have consensus that that's the case. And it's as we said, it's because people went from a safer supply to a less safe supply. Um, and, you know, when, when I talk about this publicly, I do, I do want to acknowledge that, like, things weren't great in 2010. Like, was there a lot of diverted Oxycontin use? Yes. Was it a public health concern? Yes. Like, did it merit response? Yes. But people were not dying in the six digit numbers every single year while that was happening. The harm is so much exponentially higher with these unknown products, unknown doses, right? We needed a meaningful public health response to help people be well 
and be safe and come home alive. But it was such a smaller problem back in 2010. And I think if you told someone, if you traveled back in time to 2010 and were like, guys, this is nothing, they would be like, who even are you? Um, so yeah, I mean, we know this in other cases too. Like when we had, I, I, I know that there's some like political touchiness with the name, but e-volley, the e-cigarette vaping associated lung injury thing that happened when a whole bunch of like vape pens had, I think like vitamin E and it was causing, causing people um, lung injury. If, I mean, just based on the CDC's own data, even though those cartridges consistently were not licensed products, it was always unlicensed products that were causing the harm. In the states where there was a uh, regulated marijuana industry or regulated cannabis industry, there was less of those injuries, right? So even unregulated manufacturers in states with regulation were making safer products, right? So we know that having just an environment in which being above board looks good, in which you have the infrastructure and capacities and access to the material supplies to take care of your clients and customers better, there is less harm. So even illegal weed vapes in legal weed vape states were less harmful than elsewhere, right? I mean, and it's it's just like, you can draw a line in the middle, legal weed states, illegal weed states. So, you know, I, I think it's just not a controversial, it shouldn't be a controversial topic. It's very, very straightforward. Implementation is a slightly different question. How do we want to implement it? How do we go about doing this? That requires a lot of conversation. It requires changing a lot of minds, I think. Um, but we've been lied to about drugs for more than a century in this country. You know, um, I caught myself saying marijuana earlier and I was like, no, I actually prefer to say cannabis, but that habit is laid deep. But the reason why I like to avoid saying it is because we spell marijuana with a J because there was a concerted effort to associate marijuana previously spelled with an H with Mexicans. Ooh, and, and like just literally tack into the racism of white America to associate drugs and people that we marginalize or are bigoted against and, and just kind of mush those together in a way that we don't even notice, right? In order to escalate our negative responses to substances. So yeah, I also, I was thinking as I was listening to you guys earlier, and then I'll stop talking for a second, but like part of the reason why we have this really heavy cultural focus on retributive justice is because we are subject to propaganda so much. I was recently reading Alex Vitale's End of Policing, and one of the points that he mentions in there, which I had forgotten until I reread it, is that the reason why we have police dramas in Hollywood is because the LAPD paid them to make police dramas to improve their public image after so much violence in that town. So like, if you think about prior to what was it Dragnet was some of like the earliest police serials, like, if you go back to all the like mobster dramas, like cops are not consistently good guys. But then there was this concerted funded effort to make these cops as heroes shows. Miami Vice. <laughs> Miami Vice. And, and then we had cops, the like live action police on the road because of a writer's strike <laughs> and they just needed concept and people were already sold on the idea of cop shows. Um, so, so yeah, I know that it's very, um, uh, hip at the moment to refer to these shows as copaganda. Um, and I think that's accurate, but like, but no, literally it's propaganda funded by police in Los Angeles. So we, we have these beliefs cause we've been lied to for decades and it's a lot of work to undo that. Yeah. Um, the LAPD and, and many other major police departments have huge PR departments, and that should just be illegal flat out, I think. Like, to you know, they we need to hold them accountable. Um, but you know, it is 
also frustrating, like you mentioned, um, that this study is dismissed as being anti-cop because it's really not about that. I think that, you know, you, you don't want to have garbage men putting out fires and you don't want to have firemen collecting the trash, you know, like it's, this is not seizing drugs should not be something cops should be doing in the first place, in my opinion. And I think that's why it's uh, dismissed as anti-cop, because that's easy. It's easy to just be like, oh, this is anti-cop, end of discussion. Because there's that whole thin blue line culture um, where, you know, any criticism of the police is seen as an attack on social norms. And we're all going to, you know, be Somalia, to use like their kind of racist imagery. You know, we're all just going to descend into chaos and murder each other if if we don't give the cops this unlimited, unchecked power which is not anti-cop. It's just like, you know, kind of like, how do we talk about this relationship that we have with these people in society? You know, we, it, it's a difficult, difficult question. And I think that's why safe supply is attacked. I just think one of the ways we talk to officers about it is through occupational health. Like it's not good for them in their role to have an unsolvable task. I mean, it's, it's the Rubik's cube that has all the same colors, you know, it's just, it's not solvable. And I think, that's super frustrating for them. So yeah, I would just agree. Not at all anti-cop. And then I just on the safe supply side, I would say, uh, this is maybe corny, but like, I, uh, I always still cling to that any positive change thinking. And, um, we probably need to just be talking more about, it's going to be a long time in the U S maybe never, I don't know, until we have safe supply, but let's just talk about the benefits of safer supplies. Like Jen was talking about with the cannabis regulation. And, you know, I've seen, uh, I know harm reduction organizations that um, donate cannabis to people that come through when they can't uh, find a supply. So uh, just noting where there are safer supplies and the benefits of those safer supplies is probably something we could do a little bit more often um, to confront some of this stuff. Yeah, and I think that this is a really good motivation for um, marrow, not, excuse me, methadone deregulation a bit, right? So because methadone for a lot of people is their safer supply. And for some people, it is their safer supply of preference. And we make it so stinking hard to get. Um, I like to remind folks whenever I can that we have no evidence that the way that we set up methadone clinics is therapeutically effective. Um, we have a lot of evidence that it actually limits access and is therapeutically unhelpful. Um, and so if, if this is safer supply and there are plenty of people in the world who are like, man, I would much rather be doing that than street dope why aren't we making that so easy to access? Making it hard to access just increases the harms that people experience and makes it, it's like, would you make the YMCA that hard to access for people that need cardio to, you know, reduce their risk of heart attack? Like, why why would you do that? Just let people have the tool. On the anti-policing thing, I, I think it was Nick Selby who pointed out to me that, that people don't become cops. They, they, a good night for a cop should be completely uneventful, right? People don't become cops to to sit around and drink coffee and eat donuts, despite what we think. They they want to turn on the lights and and get in these you know at least you know at least recruits and, and get into these sort of hairy situations. It's, it's why they become police for the excitement and um and and I think that that's uh, that that's that's part of the the issue too um, on the policing side. But um, what one, another safer supply intervention was uh, when DA Krasner here in Philadelphia decriminalized possession of Suboxone without a prescription, um, because you know yes people use it to chip kind of go back and forth, but um, every day that they take their Suboxone is one day they're they're, they're not gonna they're not gonna overdose. 
So, so Christopher, that's, I mean, he's on the record saying, I copied Brandon Del Pozo uh, and Sarah George. That was the first thing we did as a chief of police and prosecutor in Burlington. And I, I'm grateful you said that because when Jennifer brought up methadone as harm reduction or overdose prevention or safer supply, um, I agree. And I said that is like a DEA regulated bridge too far. But what we can do today is decriminalize non-prescribed buprenorphine, which is now the law in Rhode Island and Vermont and uh, and is on the docket as a bill in New York State. Um, I would just, I guess I'd close by saying your study focuses on very uh, concentrated areas. Um, I think maybe 500 meters is, is the, the largest. I don't have it in front of me. But I mean, can this be extrapolated to police inter- interventions in, in other ways? Um, we have... Uh, there was the Paxton Aloha where there seemed to be less killing in Mexico when 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 uh, El Chapo was in charge of, you know, when there was a strong figurehead. I mean, it seems to me like all across the board, we can extra- extrapolate this in 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 in, you know, supply side intervention uh, where communities get dis- disrupted, break- breakdowns in police and community trust, um, adulterated drugs, more violence. Um, so I, I guess I would start by saying, like, why, why the focus on these tightly concentrated areas and can it be extrapolated into a larger policy implications? Yeah, so the tight focus area was just that's how EMS had described the phenomenon to me, that when drugs were seized, that they saw overdoses increasing in that community where they were taken from. And so 500 meters was kind of based on previous research that used um, uh, similar data from IMPD. But to your point about could it be extrapolated? Uh, probably not with the precision that we were able to do it in Indianapolis, but what we're working on right now in another project is um, we're just looking at this question nationally. So, you know, just imagine a figure where on one axis is the number of opioids seized and on the other axis is the number of overdose deaths. We should expect based on the findings from this study that there would be an upward trajectory. And so we're working on trying to do that next. Um, and it just takes time to do this type of research. So. Well, I thank you all for being on the show. Um, you've uh, contributed an important piece of work to the literature, and uh, hopefully um, uh, people will start listening. Uh, I, I, I think of uh, what you said earlier, Brandon, um, about uh, what is your strategy, what is your end goal? And, and in Philadelphia in, in the 90s, I don't think they would have said uh, to cut the bag of dope in half and triple overdoses, but that's pretty much what happened. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, I think we've given it enough of a go to to say that if there's a war on drugs, that the, the drugs have won. Brad, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me at B-Ray Sociologist. And I'm on Twitter at Veruka2, V-E-R-U-K-A-2, because uh, I listened to a lot of garage rock when I was in middle school. Um, yeah, and it's I want to say, too, just briefly, um, I am so thrilled to be able to work with Brad and Brandon on this. I'm deeply, deeply grateful for Brad uh, for having not just the interest, but the insight to know how to connect all of these dots accurately, because I'm not lying when I say that I'm in my 40s and I've been wanting to do a study like this since I was in my 20s. I've been like, we can quantify this. We can do it. And so, so yeah, working with this team of folks who are smart, flexible, give a shit, um, and are just able to make things happen has been like an absolute highlight of my career. So I'm really, really grateful for them. And I hope that they keep making the same kind of waves. I'll say um, Brandon Del Pozo was a slightly less uncommon name than it used to be, but it was pretty uncommon. And I, I own all the Brandon Del Pozo properties, much to the chagrin of a Brandon Del Pozo in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Brad. And thanks, Jennifer, for I've, I've, it's been so exciting to watch you 
like hit this out of the park now that now that we have um, I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors but but now that his journals and articles in print and and, and the news is finally calling uh you've been really getting the message out there so thanks yeah thank you so much for coming on the show everyone yeah i'll just tell you all i hate doing this dissemination stuff i'm not a big podcast person but chris troy i love everything y'all do and it was very honored that you asked me to be on here chris so thank you. And I would not have, I would not have been able to do this study without Brandon and Jen. So just, uh, it's been such an awesome team. Um, so yeah, thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about this here. Yeah, of course. It's been our pleasure. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Narcomedia. Co-hosted and co-produced by Zachary Siegel, Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Aaron Ferguson. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. We are excited to announce that a portion of the proceeds from the show will now go toward the Urban Survivors Union, which is the National Drug Users Union, a group of directly impacted advocates for drug user health in America. This is the way social change happens from the ground up, and we are so excited to support this group that is doing such important work to fight stigma against people who use drugs. If you're a patron, you also get free stickers which are personally mailed to you. You can also request a shout-out on the show. And now, patrons can even get 30% off of merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we are so grateful to the folks that make this show possible. A little goes a long way, so thanks for making Narcotica happen. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon just isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. You can also rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad1, drug-using producer. Well, I guess that's all. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Until next time.